Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. This morning's text is going to be um, coming from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 8. I'm going to be using the English Standard Version this morning. You can follow along up here on the screens. It's also on the uh, handout or card we gave to you. And hopefully you've got either a Bible, paper Bible, or one on your uh, phone or iPad. You can follow along there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Hear the word of the living God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. A couple of years ago, back in 2012, the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy did a study, a nationwide study, and in it they broke down various groups, and they discovered that among 18 to 29-year-olds who were not married, 88% of them stated that they were having sex. 88% of unmarried 18 to 29-year-olds. But you and I might take comfort and say, well, in a lost culture it'd be that way, but, but thankfully the church will be far different. And the church was different. It was only 80% of 18 to 29-year-old unmarried self-proclaimed evangelicals, 80%. 64% of those said that they had had sex in the past year, so this was not something they had done long ago. Two out of three unmarried evangelicals, 18 to 29, said they had had sex in the last year. 42% were currently in a sexually active relationship with someone to whom they were not married. Now, we might think, and some people uh, you know, would put this out there, that the average age of marrying has risen sharply, and it has. We are at the highest uh, uh, age of becoming married that has ever existed in our culture. And that certainly creates problems for making holy waiting, as we're calling our series here. It makes it harder to do. However, it's not only a problem prior to marriage. The website Ashley Madison which is well known for it's a place you can go to find someone with whom you can have an adulterous relationship. 
25% of the people on Ashley Madison identified as evangelical. Same percentage we are in the culture. 25%. And that's the ones who will admit, I'm on here looking for an adulterous relationship, and yes, I'm an evangelical Christian. We live in a sexually confused, sex-saturated culture. But here's a bit of information for you. So did the Thessalonians. If we had done surveys back then, the surveys would have probably been as bad or worse as what I just stated. And these early believers lived in that, and it caused problems. We're well aware, most of us, that if I talk about sexual issues in the church, we think of the letter to the Corinthians. But here in Paul's earliest writing to a Gentile church, a predominantly Gentile church, he's having to deal with the same thing. So the question that comes to us as believers, those who've been called out of darkness into light is, what is God's will regarding our sexuality? And as we are doing this holy waiting, what does a holy sexuality look like? So let's dive into our text. Well, the first thing Paul wants us to notice here is, this is a holy command. This is not a suggestion. This is not Paul's opinion. He wants us to understand that this is, in fact, a divine command. This is God's word. Notice in verse 1, he says, we're asking and urging you in the Lord Jesus. This isn't just Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're doing this in the Lord Jesus. In verse 2, he says, you remember, we gave you instructions through the Lord Jesus. This wasn't our idea. It was through Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, this is the will of God that I'm talking about here. In verse 7, he refers, he says, for God has not called us. This wasn't Paul, Silas, and Timothy ushering a call to you all. It was God himself gave you the call into his kingdom. And then in verse 8, as if all that was not enough, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Now, pay attention when Paul, in a short passage, goes through and no less than five different times says, this isn't human instruction, it's divine instruction. This is not our opinion, this is the word of God. There's a reason why he's saying it and re-saying it and re-saying it five times in eight verses. Paul wants to remind them, this is not his opinion, it's not a human idea. It is God's word and it is God's will. And Paul is linking back. You remember in the early part of this book, which was very extended, he kind of lays out things he's going to go over. And he had already commended the Thessalonians for the way that they had received the apostolic preaching, not as a human word, but as a divine word. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul said that when we're praying, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it is really the word of God. And Paul is now bringing back and saying, okay, that was true of the gospel. When I proclaim the gospel to you, you received it as the word of God. Well, now I'm going to lay out the implications of the gospel for what it means for you in your lifestyle and conduct. And I want you to remind yourself, this is also not a human word. This is the word of God. And this is imperative for us to grasp because in every age, we are tempted to treat God's word as mere human opinion. 
But that leads to destruction, not to blessing. That is true of the gospel. It is true of God's law. It is true of all the implications of the gospel and how we conduct ourselves as those who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We cannot take the word of God and reduce it down and say, well, that's your opinion. No, it's not our opinion. It is the word of God. And so Paul launches into this discussion because he knows how difficult it's going to be because Paul didn't have the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy survey, but Paul was well aware of the culture in which he lived. And that culture was sexually confused and dysfunctional. And so Paul says, because you are so, you live in a culture that is where you are surrounded by wrong ideas about human sexuality, it's important for me to remind you as I launch into this discussion, not my opinion, not what Paul thinks. This is what God says. And he's telling us here the word and the will of God for holy conduct. This is all about our holiness. We're calling this series Holy Waiting because holiness is a central theme and it's very central in this passage. In these eight verses, the word for holiness is used four times. They're all in the same Greek word. Uh, You can see them up here on the screen. In verse three, the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is just another English translation. It's the same word for holiness. It can be translated holy or holiness, sanctification. The same root word is translated as saints. You are saints, which means you are set apart. So he says, it's your sanctification or your holiness. In verse four, that you control your body in holiness. In verse seven, God hasn't called us to impurity, but to holiness. And in verse eight, remember God gave you his, and Paul doesn't just say here, God gave you his spirit. He points out he gave you his holy spirit. Because when you've received the Holy Spirit, you are called to walk in holiness. So holy words are used four times in this section because it is a strong message to encourage growth in holy conduct and sanctification. There's a, the the letter's taking a turn here. Remember, we've talked that originally our holiness is our status in Christ Jesus. Those of us who've been called by God through the gospel and we are now justified and we are in Christ, we are God's holy people. That's our status. But Paul is now shifting and saying, and as God's holy people, therefore you need to walk in holiness. Be who you are. Be who God has declared you to be. Act as God has declared you to be in Christ Jesus. So the Christian life is a life of holiness. And that is true past, present, and future. I want you to think theologically with me for a moment here. The Christian life is one of holiness constantly and consistently. When God called us into his kingdom, we became his holy people. This is justification. We were declared righteous. We were declared holy by God. That's what it means to be justified. And that is a past accomplished act. But our present is also one of holiness because our life is to be one of growing in holiness in our actual conduct. That is our sanctification. And in the future, when Jesus returns, which is the other major theme in this book where Paul is going to turn, you and I are going to see our holiness completed in our glorification. When we are no longer released from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we're even going to be removed from the presence of sin. And every desire you and I have will be holy. So it is holiness past, present, 
future. Holiness and justification, holiness and sanctification, and we are heading towards holiness and glorification. So it's impossible to conceive of the Christian life apart from holiness. Or as the writer to the Hebrews, uh, writer to the letter of the Hebrews might say, uh, it's impossible to see God apart from holiness. Those who don't walk in holiness will not see God because our entire Christian life and calling is one of holiness. Now, I introduced it by talking about sexuality, and why did I do that? Because that's where Paul's going to turn. He turns from a general discussion about a divine command to a specific call for a holy sexuality. And the specific area of holiness that is in view when Paul's going to be talking about holiness is particularly a holiness of sexual conduct. Notice in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And Paul's going to be building kind of a chain here. God's general will is that you walk in holiness. What I'm specifically talking about is sexual holiness, is what Paul is telling us. And then he's going to describe it even further in the coming moments. And so sanctification includes abstaining from sexual immorality. It's impossible for me to say, well, I'm growing in my sanctification, but my sexual life is not being conformed to the will of God. And Paul here uses the word, the the Greek word that's translated sexual immorality in most of our translations now uh, is actually the Greek word porneia. You can hear that word and understand that we would get pornography from that word. And porneia is the broadest term in the New Testament to refer to sexual sins. Drawing out of the Old Testament, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, Porneia was used to include all forms of sexual sin. Sex before marriage, or what we used to call fornication, adultery, homosexual activity, incest, prostitution, and I could continue on down the list. When you go through the Levitical code and you see God's holiness code, all forms of sexual activity that were prescribed, that were, God said, do not do these, they are all porneia. And Paul says, here's what sanctification looks like. You avoid porneia. And what that means is, in Scripture, all sex outside of a man and a woman who are married to one another is porneia. Okay, so when you hear things like, well, you know, God didn't really speak that. Yes, he did. He's been speaking to it from Genesis forward. His word is consistent on this. And all sex outside of a man and a woman who are married to one another is porneia. And Paul says, here's the will of God, your holiness. And holiness, first and foremost, means you avoid that. You stay away from sexual immorality. Now, Paul then moves on. He says, okay, God's will is your holiness. And your holiness means that you avoid sexual immorality. Well, here's what that means further. You are going to have to submit your desires to God's holy will. If you're going to be sanctified, you have to live sexually holy lives. And if you're going to live sexually holy lives, you have to submit your desires to God's holy will. Verses four and five, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now it's important to kind of read those two verses together. They go together because Paul uses an unusual phrase. The way the Greek actually reads is, that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel. And lots of ink has been spilled over arguing what possess his own vessel means. What I think Paul is doing there actually is 
he's using a euphemism. Paul's saying you need to control your sexual organs. And so he's using an unusual phrase because he doesn't really refer to wives as your vessel. That's not appropriate, which some commentators want to do. The word doesn't usually mean directly control. And he's actually building off of, if you want to see where else this is done, in 1 Samuel 21.5, David uses the exact same euphemism. When he's out with the men and he comes to the priest and he's looking for bread because he's fleeing from Saul. And the priest says, have the men abstained from women? He says, hey, we're always holy, but our vessels have been kept holy. Well, he's not talking about their clay pots. That's not what he's talking about at that moment. David's using a euphemism, and Paul's picking up on the same thing here. And he's saying, if you're going to prevent sexual sin, you're going to have to possess your vessel in holiness. You're going to have to watch over your body. And notice this is why verse 5 is important. It's the opposite of living in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or the, the heathen who do not know God. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, you lived formerly the way all of your neighbors did, which is whatever desires and lusts and passions you had, you simply gave way to them. You said, this is what I feel like, so this is how I behave. And Paul's saying, no, 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 if you're gonna be a believer and you are going to walk in holiness, which means you're going to walk in sexual holiness, you're going to have to recognize every desire and urge you have is not necessarily holy and right. And you may have to actually say no to those urges and desires. And just so we understand the difficulty in which the Thessalonians existed, this is the sexual ethic out of which they came. A man named Demosthenes, and I'm gonna put this quote up here, said this, we keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for day-to-day -day bodily needs, but we have wives to produce legitimate children and serve as trustworthy guardians of our homes. You women like that? Isn't that good stuff right there? Now, Demosthenes is not some crackpot. This guy is a highly quoted Greek guy, okay? This is the culture. I have my wife because I need legitimate heirs and somebody's got to run the house. And then you need to understand, I've got concubines for, you know, I've got those daily needs. And then when I really want to act wild and I've got some really crazy, that's why I've got a mistress. This is good stuff, isn't it? That's the culture they live in. Does it sound familiar? I mean, it's actually even, I mean, I don't know too many guys who would stand up and actually write that today. Here's my op-ed piece in the New York Times. I have a wife so I can have a legitimate heir. And then I've got, you know, concubines and I got my, my mistress over here. But they admitted it. That was the culture and the part of what they're doing. And Paul is saying that, look, I know that's the culture in which you live, but the call to live sexually chaste lives in the midst of moral decadence, that's what it means to be a Christian. And it's nothing new. The Thessalonians were facing the same things we face. They were in a culture that said, whatever desires and urges you have, here's what you should do. Obviously, you have them. They're, they're not, you should give in to that. That's the way you should walk. And Paul says, that's absolutely not what you should do. If we are to live in God's will and blessing, we must reject the sexual ethics of our culture and embrace God's call to sexual purity. Do you see why Paul began by saying, I'm gonna tell you, this is God's word. God's word, not my opinion. This is what God says. This is God's will. This is God's call. You have to walk in holiness. 
And he did all of that to start with because he said, when I start telling you this stuff, man, is it going to run across contrary to everything you've been hearing your whole life. And so it is with us today. To live in holiness in our sexual lives requires knowing that we have to say no to sexual urges and temptations that don't line up with God's revealed will in Scripture. Now, how often do we hear today, but you don't understand, this is how I feel. This is who I am inside. No, I, I totally understand that. I get that. We all have those feelings and urges. If you're living and breathing and fogging a mirror, you have those urges. That's not the question. The question is, will you say no to things? I have all kinds of urges, not only sexual urges. I also have urges occasionally, like I want to grab some guy out of a car and punch his lights out. And I can't say, but that's how I feel. And God made me to punch people's lights out. Okay? If I did that, what would they do to me? Arrest me. But if I do it sexually, our culture applauds me. And says, you're so brave, standing up and doing this. No, just because you have an urge, just because you have a desire, just because I have an urge or a desire does not mean it is correct. It does not matter how deeply we feel a sexual activity is right. If it is anything other than what the Scripture teaches, a man and a woman who are married to one another, it's wrong. It is sinful. It is unholy. It is disobedient to God. So Paul says, God wants you to be holy. Holiness requires sexual purity. And if you're going to live in sexual purity, you're going to have to not live like your neighbors who give in to whatever urge and desire they've got. You're going to have to learn to say no to desires that go against God's revealed will. And Paul adds one last thing, which is, I also want you to understand, you don't want to be sinning against others in this sexual area. In verse 6, he says that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. So Paul's telling us sexual sin not only violates God's law, he said you're actually sinning against other human beings as well. In adultery, I not only sin against the spouse of the other person, I'm sinning against my own spouse as well if I am married. But in all sexual sin, at a minimum, I involve the other person in my sin. And we are now both drug into guiltiness before God. And Paul says, you are the one who is causing that by your behavior, and you do not want to do that. And if you think back for a moment, following Paul's flow, remember the previous section that we looked at last week was where Paul said, I am praying for you to be a community of abounding, ever-increasing, overflowing love so that you can walk in holiness. And Paul would be saying here, do you see that this is the opposite of love? It is not loving to someone else to say, hey, let me drag you into my sin with me so we can both be guilty before a holy God. Paul says, how is that love? Love leads to holiness, not to dragging people into unholiness. That was his prayer right before we come into this section. And I want to remind us, this is not just in this passage. We could be preaching through a lot of the New Testament and be hearing basically the same teaching because this was such a constant theme 
of the apostolic message. I'm gonna be running through a few verses here pretty quickly. And what I want you to notice as I put them up is the words in red are the same Greek words. They may be translated by different English words, but they're coming from the same Greek root. Okay, sometimes it might be a verb, whereas we had a noun or a noun where we had a verb, but it's the same Greek words that are in all of these passages to all these different uh, places. So I want you to see how often Paul and the other apostles addressed this topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, porneia. Notice, flee from it. All other sins a man commits are outside his own body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The same phrase to refer to the Holy Spirit. Who is in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God. Paul said, I want you to maintain your vessel in holiness and honor. Same words in 1 Corinthians 6. Another place, Galatians 5.19, where Paul is going through the, the catalog of vices and virtues, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And he says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, the very first two words, he says, if you want to see what the, the sinful nature looks like, what the flesh looks like, first two words are the same two words we're dealing with here in Thessalonians as he's writing the Corinthians. Later on, Paul writes to the Colossians, a church he'd never even been to in person. But we want to, when he comes to the portion of the letter where he's describing sanctification, here's how he begins it. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which is the passion of lust, uh, evil desire, which is the same word as lust in our passage, and covetousness, which is actually the word that came out in... Verse six, where it is to wrong your brother is the same word. It's a word that oftentimes had business and financial overtones. It means to create a desire that can't be fulfilled or to have a desire of greed. So even though covetousness sounds very different, same word is in our passage. Ephesians chapter five, verse three, and I could give many more, but I'll close with this. But among you, there must not be even a hint of porneia, sexual immorality, or any kind of impurity, same word we have, or of greed, which is that same word as covetousness, which is back in our passage as well, because these are improper for God's holy people. So when Paul told the Thessalonians in verses one and two of this chapter and in verse six, we said, I'm just reminding you of what I taught you. We, we warned you and we told you those things. We were only there for a few weeks before I got ran out of town on a rail by the guys coming in, but I had already laid this down because this was basic Christian instruction. We knew this was gonna be an issue for you Gentiles that were coming into the kingdom, and I told you this, and Paul, we can see, has the same writing in 1 Corinthians to the Galatians, to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, it is over and over again in his letters. And I could bring out where Peter brings out the same instruction, the writer to Hebrews brings out the same instruction, James brings out, over and over again in the New Testament. And as we saw, if you remember the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, that was a major issue for the church, even some 40 or 50 years down the road, a constant thing they had to deal with. And all of these passages tell us one cannot claim to be a disciple of Jesus and then live a sexually immoral lifestyle following the ways of the culture rather than God's word. If I do that, my actions are shouting down my words. 
Okay? And this is an issue because our culture, face it right now, much of the insanity in our culture is going on because we want to live our sexual lives how we want to live them. Is it not true? I saw a joke yesterday on a, a website called Babylon B. They're like a Christian version of the onion. It's pretty funny, but I was actually on Friday, I saw it, but their headline was 36 year old man who identifies as a six year old wins T-ball championship by crushing home run. Okay, now if I said that and I told Linda, I said, I'm gonna notify our government tomorrow, I identify as a 70 year old and I expect all my retirement benefits now because it's how I identify. And why are you all laughing? Am I gonna get that? No, but if I announce something regarding how I identify sexually, oh, suddenly, no matter what, no matter what, we can't touch that because that's the way our culture is. We, we've lost our mind regarding this and it drives every other area of our culture. Same way it was for the Thessalonians. Paul concludes by even giving us a holy motive because God's word will even warn us why. And he begins with the law, and then he moves to the gospel. First off, Paul tells us God's judgment does motivate us to obey. When he was saying, don't sin against your brother, did you notice that phrase? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we warned you beforehand, or as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, I won't take the time to go over this text real quick, but this is another one, what I talked about in After Hours the other day, all the texts that that underlie and, and kind of sneak in the deity of Christ, this is another one. This comes out of Psalm 94, where Yahweh is an avenger. Here it's the Lord Jesus is the avenger. A Yahweh text applied to Jesus. You can't get away from the deity of Christ. But Paul here, his ultimate point is, if you're wronging others by your sexual conduct, Jesus sees. God sees. And he's paying attention. And God's law cannot be ignored. We reap what we sow. And I'm about to say something that is wildly unpopular in our culture. But I'm going to say it because it's true. And that is God judges sexual sin. He just does. Now, if I go down to the docks and stand up and get a bullhorn and say, I just want everybody to know God judges your sexual sin. He sees it and he's going to judge it. I will, I will have a lot of people throwing money at me and, and blessing me, right? I mean, I'll be immensely popular in Annapolis. Our culture does not want to hear that. They will shout you down over that. But it's true. God sees God has not changed, and God judges our sexual behavior. And this text is mainly actually looking forward to Judgment Day. Paul's going to move to the return of Christ in the coming sections. And he's saying, look, as a, even as a believer, you don't want to stand on the day. All you want to hear on that day is, well done. You, you want an overflowing well done. Live in light of that day. Live in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return. This is what eschatology is about. Eschatology is not surmising and coming up with dates and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I've been observing what's going to happen in the stars and all kinds of crazy. No, it is about Jesus is going to return. We are all going to stand before him. And so let's live holy now. 
Let's, and we're told that over and over again in the New Testament. And so Paul says that is a motivation. However, as always, as always, the ultimate motivation is not the law, it's the gospel. And so Paul tells us God's grace motivates us and empowers us to obey. The law warns us, but it can't help us to obey. But the good news is the gospel not only gives us the information of what we need, but it empowers us to actually obey. So notice what Paul says in verses seven and eight. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Your very call to be part of God and to be part of his people. You Thessalonians, when God called you in, he called you into holiness. Through the call of God, we have been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God and from lives of impurity into lives of purity and holiness. And Paul is saying, this should produce gratitude in you. When God called you out of his wrath and into his blessing based on nothing you had done, based on nothing he could see in you, you were dead and you were running from God and you hated him and his word, and Christ bore the wrath of God because of your sin and mine. And God, who is rich in mercy, called you and saved you. Paul says, how can you have anything but gratitude? That, that has got a cause to flow out of me to say, God called me, I want to live in a way that pleases God, gratitude for the gospel should motivate us to obey God and to please God and to live sexually holy lives, obeying God's word rather than cultural norms. Because if I embraced the cultural norms, I would still be lost in my trespasses and sins. Because the culture is no friendlier to the idea that Jesus God incarnate, that Jesus lived in obedience to the law of God, that Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God, that he is raised, he is ascended, he is seated at the right hand of God, and he's going to come one day to judge the living and the dead. That message is no more popular than the message of biblical sexuality. But Paul says, you believe that, you embrace that, that has got to produce gratitude. This is why the Heidelberg Catechism and our own catechism is built around the structure of guilt, grace, gratitude. And we actually go over the law of God in the third part because now I want to obey the law of God because of what he has done for me. But notice Paul even goes on and says it's more than just gratitude. As God's new covenant people, he tells us in verse 8 that God gives his Holy Spirit to you. As God's new covenant people, we are not only given the gospel, the law of God is not only externally thundering at us from Sinai, it has now been written on my heart. And the Holy Spirit is empowering me to obey that. So Paul says, you know the law of God, you've got gratitude from the gospel, but God is giving his Holy Spirit to you. Don't ignore what the Spirit is prompting you to do. And he's not prompting you to live in the sexual degradation of your culture. He's calling you to live in holiness because he is the Holy Spirit. And he is empowering you to be able to do that. You are not left on your own. As a new covenant believer, I can never say, I would like to live in holiness, but. The, the but is Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit. He's in you. He's empowering you. He is strengthening you. He is calling you. He is pouring holiness into you moment by moment. So the gospel and its blessings, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit, is the primary motivation for you and I to live in holy sexuality. So let's now come down and let's apply the word. And I couldn't figure out how this would apply to us because our culture has none of these problems, right? And the whole church, the evangelical church is doing so well at this. Don't we wish it were so? But the question is very obvious in this text. Am I living in sexual holiness? Am I living in sexual holiness? God's word has a lot to say about human sexuality. I mean, one of the first things we're told about humanity is God made us male and female, which is part of our sexuality. I mean, you don't have to go very far. You're in the first chapter of a very large book right up front. We're told that. God's word has a lot to say about sexuality. And it is very clear on human sexuality. We are created male or female, and all sexual activity is prohibited except a man and a woman who are married to each other. This is not hard to figure out. I mean, you have to get multiple PhDs from some German university to try and mess this thing up. It's pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, it's the old Mark Twain quote, the problem is not that we can't figure out what it means. We just don't like what it says. We just don't want to obey. That is our problem. So that means when I'm asking the question of am I living in sexual holiness, the first part of that, as we turn this around and look at it from different angles, here's the first part of that question. Do I submit to the authority of God's word? Because friend, if we submit to the authority of God's word, then we're gonna live in sexual holiness. And if I'm not living in sexual holiness, then what that tells me is I'm not really submitted to the authority of God's word. I submit to it when I like it. And boy, do we all have that disease. I mean, I've got Bible sections I like. And then stuff that let's just skip that for my quiet time. Because I don't like that. That's kind of convicting. But am I submitted to the authority of God's word? Or is my mind being shaped by the culture? Because that culture is pumping into you and me 24-7 a hypersexualized worldview and it is completely contrary to the word of God. So am I submitting to the authority of God's word? Twist the question a little further. Look at it from another angle. Am I obeying God's revealed will in my sexual behavior? This is not a question of trying to figure out what God would say God already has said. This is the funny thing to me. You can go and look in a Christian bookstore, you can look online, and you can find all kinds of books about how to determine the will of God. Which car does God want me to buy? Which house is it that God would have me to buy? And you know what God is pretty much saying to most of that stuff? Buy whichever car you want. But the 42% of you evangelicals who are currently in an active sexual relationship while you're not married, I have given a revealed will about that. The problem is not finding the will of God. I just don't like what I find. And so I would rather find, is there some quest I can go on? Just 
far as picking up your Bible, that could be the quest. And just read it. God has revealed his will. Am I following that? I need not seek any further. When Linda and I were dating, I didn't have to say, God, do you want us engaging in a sexual relationship? Question that didn't need to be there. There was no need to engage in a sexual relationship. I had lots of people making fun of me for not doing so, giving me lots of advice about how crazy I was. And can I tell you, 33 years in, I'm, I have never rude for one second that I didn't listen to them. Never been sorry that, man, I wish we had just started this earlier. Which way am I being shaped? Do I submit my sexual desires to God or do I try to alter God's word to fit my desires? I mean, th this is what we do. That can't be quite what God made. So let me, let me explain what the Greek means. There's no explaining what it means. It means exactly what it sounds like it means. And my job is not to alter God's word to fit my desires. My job is to say, you know what? My desires right now are another example of the fall. There are another place where I've been twisted. And I'm going to submit those to God's word rather than submitting God's word to my desires. One of the major problems of our culture, we, even in the church, we really think we come to judge the word of God and to prove whether the word of God is right or true. Friend, you don't judge the word of God, nor do I. The word of God judges us. We obey or we disobey. We believe or we disbelieve. But God's word is true, and it will not be judged by any one of us. Now, let me speak, because I want to make sure I end with this. There's a fair amount of law, what I've just talked about. I want to remind us of gospel. You may be sitting here and you may say, either I sinned long ago and wow, we botched this thing up before we got started. You may be saying, I'm part of that 42%. I may not be even 18 to 29, but I'm part of that. I want to encourage and remind you the word of grace. If you and I sin, we repent. We confess it. We come to the Lord and we lay it before him and we say, I have blown it and Holy Spirit, I want you to empower me. Blood of Jesus, cleanse me. Father, receive me and hold me. Holy Spirit, empower me. I don't want to walk that way. I, I want to encourage you and remind you that that's what we do. We don't take our sin. We don't hold on to it because we don't live by the law. We live by the gospel. The law is here to show us our need for the gospel. And if we're honest, many of us are going to be convicted by this because I didn't even get to go, I'm just following what Paul's got in the text. But obviously Jesus drives this a whole lot deeper and says, well, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? I mean, I would really be meddling if I start going there. But whatever our sin is, we bring it to God. We confess. We repent. We receive grace and mercy. And so I want to I encourage you with that. And I want to remind us as well, as, as part of the gospel, God did not create these rules because he was bored. 
in deep, dark eternity and say, you know, I think I'm going to make some human beings. I'm going to give them all kinds of urges and desires, and I'm going to say no to all of them. That's what the enemy said. You mean God put you in this garden and told you you can't have anything in here to eat? And what was the reality? No, we can eat everything in here. There's one thing we're not supposed to eat because God said that's not good for us. Okay? God's word is always for our good. God's will is always for our good. I'm going to talk in after hours a little bit about why that is and why God gave these rules for sexuality. So if you, if you want, on Tuesday, you can tune into the video, and in five or six minutes, I'll kind of go over some of the reasons behind it. But I, I want to remind you, when God is doing this and you hear this, don't think it's because God is a cosmic killjoy. He's seeking to find human beings having fun and making them stop it. It's not what it is. Whatever is sin is distorting your humanity and mind. It misshapes your soul. It destroys your body. It warps who you are and who I am. And our loving Father says, I don't want that for you. I want you to be who I made you to be. I want you to pulse and radiate with my glory. And I want you to learn, to acquire, to have a taste for that which is true and beautiful and good and righteous and holy. And to realize the rest of that stuff is disgusting, disturbing, and deforming. That's God's desire for us. So we're going to stand together and we'll pray. And I'm going to pray for all of us. If you've been convicted by the Lord for something this morning, if God's word has done that, I encourage you to confess and to receive forgiveness and mercy. And if you need to talk about anything, I'm obviously always here and, and able to do it, but let's ask the Lord to empower us for this area. Jesus, we are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful that you called us. We who were strangers, aliens to your covenants of promise, who were without God, without hope in the world. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you, being rich in mercy, called us. You regenerated us. You renewed us. You washed us by your Holy Spirit. You made us your people. Lord, we are so grateful for that. But Lord, we admit as we hear Paul's words, we can feel the pain and the struggle and the hardship the Thessalonians face because, Lord, we are living in Thessalonica. Lord, we live in a culture that is constantly trying to misshape us in this area. We live in a culture that is so sexually confused and overwrought. Lord, we confess it is hard to walk pure in thought, word, and deed. But Father, we do not want to alter your word rather than our desires. And so we ask, Father, you who give the Holy Spirit to us, Lord, would you renew our minds? 
Lord, as we sang this morning, would you shape and form and transform our wills? Lord, would you cause holiness to be ours, not only in our justification, but in an ever-increasing manner in our sanctification? Lord, would you shape us so that we desire what you desire? And what breaks your heart would break our heart. And Father, that we would walk in a manner that would be pleasing to you. And Father, that would be good for us. Father, I pray if any of us are having our minds so wrapped and absorbed and shaped by our culture, that there's almost a cocoon around us. Father, I pray that your powerful word would pierce through, that like a hammer, it would break the rock to pieces, pierce through to our hearts and our consciences. And Father, I pray for all of us who have been so pierced. Lord, I pray for the healing balm of your gospel. I pray rather than being like Adam and Eve, Father, rather than hiding and trying to make our own clothing, we'd come out from the bushes and we'd say, Father, here am I. I have sinned. I have fallen short of your glory. I cry to you for mercy. And we would let you cleanse us. We would let you cover us, and that, Father, we would run to you rather than away from you. Finally, Lord, I pray for a fresh outpouring and filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm encouraged that Paul says not just that you gave your Holy Spirit to us, but you give your Holy Spirit to us. So, Lord, I pray for you to stir up the powerful Holy Spirit within each of us who are your covenant children. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir up within us holy desires. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us so that tomorrow when we face the, the Lord to go left, Father, we would say no and we would follow you. That we would hear your voice and we would be empowered to obey. Lord, I, I pray for us, Father. It is, this is a challenge in our culture. But Lord, I am grateful we are new covenant people with new covenant provision. Father, may we never doubt that, but always rejoice in it and draw upon all the power you give us through your Holy Spirit. I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I encourage you, as I speak the word of benediction, I encourage you to reach out and receive the blessing and the empowerment of God. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Go in the peace and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.